For this is the message which you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and killed his brother. Why did he kill him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Don't be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He who doesn't love his brother remains in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life remaining in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, then closes his heart of compassion against him, how does God's love remain in him? My little children, let's not love in word only, or with the tongue only, but in deed and truth. All right, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 John chapter 3. We've been in a series all summer long here called The Summer of Love. It's groovy, baby. All this, uh, we're walking through this, this book of 1 John. And uh, big news, today, officially, we're in the second half of the series. So, yay, we, you've made it through eight, and we're, we're on the second half. Here we go. Because 1 John is, is a powerful book. And if you've been with us any, you have realized this book is often called uh, a letter of love, but it is not all just like rainbows and flowers, right? I mean, this is, it's got to, as if you were here last week, the great brother Derek shared an incredible message. If, if you weren't here, make sure you listen to that podcast. It was good. But hard-hitting stuff. John gives us some hard-hitting stuff. So we're not doing this just as an academic exercise to say, oh, we've gone through a book of the Bible. It's what comes next. But we are asking ourselves some really compelling questions that this book brings up to us. And, and my goodness, how pertinent to our life right now here in 2023 is there anybody here today who needs a, a fresh reminder of God's love? All day, all, every day. Is there anybody today who could use a fresh word, a, a fresh experience of God's grace? Yes, yes. Is there anybody here today, and I don't want to single anybody out, it might just be a few of you, but is the, who ha, maybe you have somebody in your life uh, that you have a difficult time loving? Right? And you could use a little help today. Hands real, real high, high back there, yeah. Anybody here today, if you could just leave here this afternoon with a little less ambition to kill them, that would be a, that'd be a step forward. And we're going to take those steps anywhere we can get them, right? Amen. Amen. I heard a story about a woman who had, she had been out of uh, church for, for a little bit. She, she'd been on vacation during the summer. And so she, she, had been, she hadn't been in service for a couple weeks. When she got back, uh, this other lady in the church who, they had kind of had an icy relationship. You know, there was that tension. You know, there's always those people. I know you don't understand, but some people have had those kind of weird tensional relationships with people at church. This woman comes running up to her and gives her this big hug when she walks in the door and tells her she loves her. And she is like, what in the world was, you know, she was like thankful, but she was walking away thinking, I wonder what that was about. I wonder if, you know, did this woman like finally understand like her role that she has played in this, you know, this, you know, situation between us? Was that, you know, her way of sort of trying to make up and say, I'm sorry? And well, she got her answer why this woman did this. At the end of the service, the pastor said, now my, my, my homework for you is this, this week is the same as last week. I want you to find somebody and show love to somebody that you just can't stand. <laughs> Amen. 
Amen. That, that would make it awkward, right? That's your homework today. After the service, I want you to just greet and love on somebody you just can't stand. That'll, that'll make it awkward to say hi to everybody. Um, I'm going to offer a few thoughts. We're in 1 John. We're in chapter 3. We're going to pick it up right where we left off uh, with, uh, with Derek. In verse 11, it says, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. What's he referring to? He's referring to the gospel of John when Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, love one another, right? As I have loved you. I mean, that's a tall order of love right there, right? And then in, we go, and then in verse 12, he goes all the way back to like the dawn of time and he mentions Cain. He goes way, way early, early biblical story of the first brother who kills the other first brother. And, and then immediately after this, he says, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. So the world here, we've talked about this before, the world here refers to that word cosmos, refers to the systems and the values of this world um, that is opposed to God's kingdom and his way, his system and values. So the world has, is, is part of this fallen system uh, and the, the systems of this world is, it operates by humanity's basis nature, right? That's as good as it can do. It has to appeal to the basis nature of humanity. I was thinking about this. You know, the two great economic systems that came to power in the 20th century are what? You had, you had the rise of capitalism, you had the rise of communism, right? And they were like at war with each other ever since. But both of these powers, when you think about it, what do they operate by? Communism operates kind of, it appeals to, to the, the base envy of people, right? The envy, so we're going to keep everybody equal. And what is, you know, capitalism, it appeals to what? Greed, right? It appeals to your, your greed, you know, to, to have more. So that's the best we can do. That's the best we can do because we, uh, we don't live in the kingdom of God. You know, the heaven hasn't come down yet. And so that's the best we have. That's the world's nature. And John says earlier in this chapter that the world does not know God. The world doesn't see us as God's children. It doesn't share our hope or our joy. It doesn't operate by the laws of love, right? So the world hates us. Why does it hate us? Because we won't swear loyalty to its systems, we shouldn't. We shouldn't be swearing loyalty to anyone but one, but God, right? So, and that's why, you know, as Christians, we always say we, we, we don't need to get online and, and rail and scream that, any, you know, that everybody doesn't agree with us because, you know, well, they're sinners for Pete's sake. You know, how, how, how do you expect them? They can't help but be at odds with the kingdom of God. It's a whole different system. The real question here is, is well, how should we respond to the world's hate? Should we hate back? just as hard? Of course not. Should we retaliate? We seek revenge? No, no, we respond the way our rabbi did, our Messiah, Jesus. How did he respond to the world's hate? Self-sacrificial love, right? So then John, he talks about this, uh, look at this, a kind of a crossing over. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. And anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Eternal life, that's that Zoe. We've talked about that Zoe life. So, so John here, he says, when you hate, you, you are living in a kind of death like a living death. You are living in this death. And when you love, you're at that moment, you're walking in a sort of life. And talking about this life and death, we need to understand that in the world of, of the writer John, 
life and death were seen uh, differently uh, than, than we see things in, in the church, in, in the kingdom. In our world, life and death are two distinct categories, right? You're either in one or the other. You're alive until the moment you breathe your last, and then you're not alive anymore. You are now in death, right? You are not living. You're not a little bit alive. You're just dead. It's like being a little bit pregnant. It's just, nope, you're just one or the other, right? You're alive or you're dead. So you're in one, it's a distinct category, you move to the other, and then you're there, and you no longer live. And so the compelling question that brings up in our world, and for even religious people, uh, you know, what we love to debate and discuss, well, if there's life and then there's death, well, is there life after death, right? Everybody wants to know that. And that becomes this fixation, um, the compelling question that the world is, is obsessed with. And I want to show you a word that the writer John uses here. When he says that we have passed from death to life, he uses this Greek word, metabebekemen, metabebekemen. If you want to try it, go for it. It's a lot of fun to say, metabebekemen. Some of you just got halfway to speaking in tongues. Way to go. All right. <laughs> Come up for prayer afterwards, and we'll get you all the way there. So, meta bebekemen. Meta means a change, like metamorphosis, which is a, a change in form. And then that other half of the word comes from the word beno, which means to come or to go into a completely different place. So, what the writer here is saying is that when we love, we are demonstrating, like in some real profound way, that we have meta bebekemen from death to life. When we love, so for John, life and death are not just these two distinct states. You're either alive and then you pass away into death. The question for the writer isn't, is there life after death? The question for this writer is, is there life before death? Are we clicking? This is what's driving John. It's why he starts talking about Cain and Abel. He starts talking about Cain and Abel. He's, he's like, from the beginning, there is this sort of murder that is at the heart of people. It's lurking there. From early on, we see it, right? There's something within us. It's against our brother and our sister. It's against our neighbor and our family. There's something that grinds against us, against those around us that, that fails to love. It slanders. It gossips. It commits violence. It abuses. It exploits. It murders. There's something in us. And there's this sort of death that is present all around us. It's lurking in our hearts from the moment we're born. So really, we're born into this kind of death. So we're alive, but we're also dead at the same time. And, but he's saying the good news is we can literally metabebekim in and cross over now. Not just, you know, when you say goodbye to everybody and you die. But now we can cross over into a life that endures forever. That's that Zoe life. It endures forever. And John insists that you can trust this God. You can open yourself up to, to this life-giving power of God. You can say yes to, to Jesus, his redeeming activity. He conquers death. And not just the death at the end of life, but the death that begins when we begin life. He conquers that death. So when you open yourself up to God, to this eternal kind of life, that Zoe life that we talked about in week one, you cross over, you cross over at that moment from death into life. Something new takes over. So at some point, here's the good news. At some point, most of us in this room are going to die. So far, the death rate is 100%. So I'm just going to, you know, go on a limb and say, 
we're all going to die. At some point, each of us are going to pass away from this kind of life, right? For some folks, the Houston Texans are going to win the Super Bowl, and they're just going to be like, <laughs> that's it. I've seen everything. I can go in peace, right? Father, accept my spirit. Um, but, so we're going to experience that. But, but, but you've already stepped into that kind of life, he says. You've already stepped into it, that, that life that just grows and expands and flourishes. And he says, when you love, when the love of God, that love is taken over you and it spills over to those around you, then you have demonstrated that you have met a in from death into life. The compelling truth of this passage isn't, is there a life after death? The exciting insistence of, of what John is saying here is that there is life before death. You with me? Amen. Now, let's go back to the text because the writer here is just getting started. He says this in verse 16. This is how we know what love is. All right, how do we know what love is? Well, this is how we know Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Uh, my little girl, my, my precious daughter, I love her so much. She has just the best reaction when you give her something. Uh, just, she's somebody that you just love to give presents to because it is just pure Nothing held back joy when you go to her and, and, and if I say, oh, I bought you a toy or I bought you a new outfit or something like that, or we're going to go, get, let's go get some ice cream. <gasps> her face lights up and it just, uh, it just cleanses my soul. It is so beautiful. She's so excited. She has this great reaction to stuff. Uh, the late great philosopher Dallas Willard, he says that what happens is we get older as we get older, we, is we learn how to control our facial muscles, right? And that's the problem. So we can, we can feel something joyful, but we know how to make our, act, our face act differently. We know how to be cool about it, right? But a kid hasn't learned that yet. So their joy just spills out. Their gratitude just spills out their, you know, into their entire physicality. And, uh, and, and you know what I'm talking about. That's why I love Christmas even more now than when I was a kid, right? Because I know, I know I'm going to, when I give those presents, I know I'm going to see that look on their face, that exuberant gratitude from, oh, that's, you got me this, right? That smile that comes from pure gratitude. At the heart of the Christian faith is gift. It's, it's gift of breath. It's gift of life, gift of forgiveness. It's the gift of grace, of resurrection. That's at the heart of our faith is gift central to being a Christian is, is to choose to orient your whole worldview and your whole attitude around gift. It's why, it's why complaining about stuff and whining about things, having a sense of entitlement, yeah, it comes naturally, but all that, having a scorecard of, of stuff that you didn't get or, you know, this person got all the wonderful things and it didn't come your way and, you know, you got passed over. All those sorts of attitude simply don't exist in the worldview of the kingdom. They're, they're not part of the kingdom because the kingdom is all about gift. And notice the interesting relationship. I, I, I was noticing as I was studying here, what, what is this passage? 1 John 3.16. Look at the relationship it has to another famous John 3.16. So years earlier, it's the same author, remember, years earlier, 
in his gospel, John says that Jesus lays down his life for us. And so now, 40 years or so later, John's writing this letter. And 40 years after the crucifixion, John's, what does he tell us? Now, Jesus laid down his life for us. So uh, out, of that, out of response to that profound gift, we then live lives in which we give. We give because we are filled with gratitude. And that gratitude spills over into the ways that we deal with people around us, including lay down, laying down our rights and our privileges and our scoring points and our needs to win the argument. You and I have been given what we never deserved. Amen? We, we've been given what we never deserved. So of course we pour it out on those who, who don't deserve it. And of course, that's how we live. Of course it is. At the heart of the Christian faith is gift. And this is another huge reason, by the way, why, why we come together for worship in community on Sunday morning, why this is so important, whether we do this on a Sunday morning or in our small groups during the week, because at the heart of our faith, of our Christian faith, is knowing that no one walks alone, no one does. And that applies not just to ourselves, but also to the person sitting next to you right now. So we don't just worship by singing songs to God, but we, we worship also by pouring out the gift of ourselves to each other. So being present matters, right? It's also in community, by the way, where we are reminded that it's not all about me. I'm reminded of that when I come together with other people. It's not all about what I am do. It's where I'm reminded that everything I have is a gift and everything I am is a gift to others. It's a gift to be given to others. Is there anybody here today who perhaps you found yourself just in this pattern, this cycle you can't shake of, of complaint, of bitterness and entitlement. Is there anybody here who feels like life was supposed to, to give you something better and it hasn't and you're a bit upset about it? You're a bit hacked off. You've been messed over and, and you want to know who you can hold accountable for this. And so we gather, one of the other reasons that we gather with other people we gather with people who, some of whom are very easy to be around and some of whom are a, are a bit of a challenge, but we gather with other people to ask God to remind us that life is a gift. We would rather live in the spirit of gratitude than any other way. There is no better way to live. Amen? Amen. There's no better way to live than with the attitude, not that I'm owed something, but that it's all a gift. Now, the writer's not done. He keeps going. Verse 17, he says, if anyone has material possessions, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? So let's, let's look at our passage today. We started with Cain and Abel, and now we're at, uh, if, if you have something, if you have material possessions and a brother or sister around you has a need but you have no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? I want to look at, at a couple different translations just to get an idea of how different, different people have interpreted this verse. Uh, let's see. Here is one uh, translation. This is the new... No, no, no. Let me go back up to the first. Yeah, the one there. Yeah, New Living Translation is here. Um, 
It says, if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Notice this one is from the uh, NRSV. This is normally my, my personal go-to when I'm just in my personal study. It's usually very, very accurate. Um, not always the, the prettiest language, but it tends to be accurate. It says, how does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Okay, so instead of no pity, here uh, it's translated refuses help. Here's the uh, RV, RVR. Pero el que tiene bienes de este mundo y ve a su hermano tiene la necesidad. Y cierra contra él su corazón. Como mora el amor de Dios en él. Right? Amen? You can see what he, was, what he did right there, right? I have no idea what I just said. I just thought that would be fun. Thank you. All right. Now, check this out. This one is the... Uh, from the King James. Alert the media. Pastor Scott is reading from the King James this morning, ladies and gentlemen. Let it never be said. I've never read from the King James. Here we go. But whoso hath this world's goods and seeth his brother in need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Just reading the Bible, right? So we started with show no pity. Uh, we worked to withhold compassion. Now, the King James, if you shut off your bowels. Now, call me crazy. I've kind of lived with the assumption that this is one of the nicest things I can do for people. <laughs> is make sure I'm doing this, right? As opposed to the alternative. Um, the, the reason why I want to show you this is because in a strange sort of way, in a unique way, this, this shut a thing off of the bowels is actually... A better translation, I don't often say that about the key, King James, but it, it actually gets it to what the writer is literally saying, okay? And I want to give you a sense of how the original audience would have heard this. The subtlety you, you come miss sometimes in sort of the cleaned up modern translations. The shutting of the bowels in the Greek is the uh, cleoing of your splangnon. To, to cleo means to shut or to close. Uh, the splagnon, splagnon uh, is considered the bowels. It's literally the, the intestines, sometimes called the upper viscera of the, of the body. Um, this past week, we've had a lot of fun at the Hale House. We have been uh, the same uh, beautiful daughter that I was just mentioned before. We have decided it is time to introduce her to Star Wars. And so each night of the week... Yes, we have been watching a new Star Wars. She's never seen it before. And, uh, and so this has been a lot of fun, just like seeing this again. Like we started with like 1977, A New Hope, right? The way you're supposed to start. And so, and watching this through her eyes and she knows none of the secrets, you know? And if you haven't seen it, spoiler alerts, it's 40 years old, so that's on you. But, you know, and, and you know, and I'm your father and uh, you know, all those kind of stuff. And so just last night we finished um, Return of the Jedi which was, uh, if, you, if you remember, this is the one where Luke's frozen, he's dying, you know, in the, in the frozen snow. And so what does Han have to do? He takes his tauntaun, you know, it was like sort of this kangaroo camel thing that has, has died and, in the snow. And he takes it and he takes the lightsaber and he opens up the belly of it because it'll be warm in there to stuff his friend Luke in so it'll stay warm. And of course, in that moment, what comes 
spilling out of the tauntaun is all these just wonderful guts, right? All of the stuff. And it's just a 12-year-old boy's dream. That scene is like the favorite of so many kids. Uh, and Adeline makes her other greatest face, which is her disgust face, which is just a full-on disgust and turns around to all of us to make sure we're, we've all seen that. Did you see what he just did? What was my point? My point was, that's the splagnon. That's the, uh, that's the guts of this thing. So all of that comes pouring out of this poor animal. Um, so what is John saying? He's saying, you see somebody, you have, you know, good and plenty, and they are in need, and you have what they need, and you don't help them. The writer says you're essentially shutting off your splagnon to them. It's like you, you suffer from relational and spiritual constipation, right? You're shutting it off. Now, why is he saying this? In John's culture, here, here again, it helps to, to do a little digging here. In his culture, in the Jew, to the Jews and the Romans of the day, your splagnon, the, this upper viscera region, is actually the place that you truly live from, right? Your gut. In ancient Greece, in Greek culture, the bowels were seen as the seat of your emotions, particularly compassion and empathy. Now, in the same way, we, we would, you know, raise a few inches to the north in the anatomy and say it's your heart, right? We use that. But again, that's just a culturalism, right? There's nothing endemic to the heart that, like, is, this muscle doesn't love people more than my arm muscle, right? It's, it's, we say the heart, you know, we would say, oh, you got to get to the heart of the matter, right? Or I love that person with all my heart. The Greeks would look at their guts as the place of your truest self. And so, we still have a bit of this today. We would say, you know, when you say or you hear someone say, I just, I hate that person's guts. Oof, right? That's not because you just, you know, disagree with them on some matter of quantum mechanical physics or something like that. No, there is something deeper going on. It's not just an intellectual disagreement there. To hate someone's guts is essentially language that we have developed to say there is something in their very essence that I am opposed to, right? Or we'll say, I knew it in my guts. We'll even use the term, I had a visceral reaction to something, which is a way to say that I didn't just experience this on a head or an intellectual level. I knew in this, in the place that I actually live from, it's where I actually live from, that I experienced this, and that's why I did it, you know, or because I believe it. Or you might say, oh, I got that phone call, and it, was, it left me with a pit in my stomach. And that's what we're really saying, is that stuck down there in the splagnon, there is some seat of my being where I actually hold things from which I actually live. This is what I actually live from. So we may be able to intellectually, you know, explain something or rationalize it perfectly, you know, with our head, but we still don't have peace. And someone might explain something to you and you'd be like, well, I hear you, but you know, I just don't, uh, just something about it. I don't have peace with, with that because somewhere in my splagnon, I am still unsettled. What's fascinating is that all over the New Testament, the same word is used. Splagnon is often used from the place where mercy flows from. In, a, in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah prophesies that God will visit his people with the sunrise from on high because of the tender mercy 
and it's the splagnon of our God. Philippians 1, Paul says that he yearns for the Philippians with the affection, the splagnon of Christ Jesus. In Colossians 3.12, Paul tells the Colossians to put on, now it says, compassionate hearts as God's chosen one. Literally, put on your loving guts <laughs> as God's chosen one, right? So the writer here says that the love of God, it flows to others or it is shut off and doesn't flow to others from the opening and closing of this place called the Splagnon. Now, what's telling, what we learn from, from John and all these other pla places in the Bible is that until there is a, a disruption here in the core of us, we will continue to live exactly as we're living. It doesn't matter how good this sermon or any other sermon is. Until there's a disruption in the core of your being, we'll live the way we've always been living. We may mentally even affirm uh, a whole list of things. We may say, no, I don't believe this, or I do believe this, or I would never do this, so I'll do that. Um, but we actually live often in a very different way. Do you notice that about yourself? I notice that about me, right? We'll say one thing, we often live in a different way, and sometimes what religion can do is religion can gather people together and, and people can recite all the same things and we can publicly affirm all the same things and we can basically have everybody, you know, sing and chant and pray and listen to all the, the things that we've always agreed to and then you walk out the exact same person. Religion can actually inoculate you from having your splagnon disrupted instead of actually experiencing change and transformation. It can make you think that learning all the right words and all the right places to say amen is a substitute for change. I, I'm preaching not badly right now if I say so myself. Okay. So when we, when we talk about loving, when we talk about loving, how many of us would say like, uh, if I said it's good to love your neighbor, we'd be like, oh yeah, amen, right? Everyone's created in the image of God. Amen. Preach it, brother. All of your relatives, all of your family members and coworkers are sacred creations made in God's image. Yes. I mean, except for my uncle, but you know, that's, right? It's good to forgive. Yep, I know it. It's true. You know, we should be patient with people who are hard to get along with. Yep, yep. I totally agree with that. The gospel is about loving your neighbor. Amen. Go t tell it on the mountain, preacher. Amen. This person who wronged you. It's time to forgive them. I know. <laughs> right? And we may even affirm it. Yep, it is time. But until the very seat of our being is disrupted in some way that we are moved to forgive them, we will continue to nod and agree and say amen in all the right places, right? Because it's all up here. And Jesus' invitation is to allow the love of God to transform the core of our being from which you actually live. That's why John finishes this little passage we're reading today with verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. John isn't going to let us off the hook just by learning some interesting new facts. Words, as they say, are cheap. Amen. Right? 
Truth, truth is not even ultimately found in, in just how right our opinions are, but in what we do about it, right? Amen. And so this requires more from you and me than just regurgitating back all the correct lines and rituals and amening in the right places. It requires a transformation in the very center of our being. So in this passage, it is when we have that person that we have an unbelievably difficult time loving. And we say, God, I know, I know what I'm supposed to feel. I agree what I'm supposed to feel, but I need my splagnon transformed. It is shut off to that person. I need a disruption. I need a rupture. I need that stone to be broken up and changed so that I can actually love them. I want to read you this prayer. It's written by a poet named Ted Loder. He wrote this uh, book called Gorillas of Grace and has some beautiful poetry in it. And this one is in the form of a prayer. It's just, uh, it just struck me when I read this. I was just like, oh, heavens. He says, oh God, let something essential happen to me. Something more than interesting or entertaining or thoughtful. Oh God, let something essential happen to me. Something awesome something real. Speak to my condition, Lord, and change me somewhere inside where it matters. <sighs> he goes on to say, I love, I want to love that dares dangerous deeds. Let something happen in me that is my real self, oh God. Is there anybody here who's been a slave to a spirit of entitlement or complaint you feel like you've been wronged in some way. You've been wronged by the cosmos. And so today, we drag that to the altar, to the cross, and we say, God, change me on the inside. Change me into a person of gratitude, not just a person who knows this stuff, but God, I, I, I don't have the right love. I don't have any kind of love residing deep down in my bones for this person? Is there somebody that you have been closed to? And today it's simply saying, God, I need love for this person. Maybe, maybe it's somebody I've even helped them in the past, but now the thought of helping, it just fills me with resentment. And I need a little help to take a step forward. In a minute, our prayer partners are gonna come forward to pray with any of you who would like prayer. And this, I just want to say, is a beautiful time to come face to face with the grace of God. Whether you have ever said yes to Jesus before, or whether you have just been away from him for a long time, or if you're just a long-time Christian, but you realize, ah, I have, I need my splagnon revolutionized. I need love that I haven't felt in a long time. This is a beautiful time to come to the Lord, to lay our troubles down at his feet and to receive his gift because it's all a gift. It's all a gift. And to say, God, here, I can't do this on my own. No amount of willpower or therapy will get me there. I need a miracle. I'm at the end and I want to cross over from death into life. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, as we come to you, 
to be reminded, Lord. We, we ask to be reminded to, to, for certain things to be recaptured in our heart, Lord God, as we search that, search our guts, Lord, that upper viscera, that inner place deep down from which we actually live, Lord God, where we move and relate and think and have our being, Lord God. We ask you to speak to each of us. We ask you to do that work which we are unable to do on our own. Lord, we ask for a fresh working of your grace in places that we need the most. Thank you, Lord God, for these, these beautiful, strong, uh, confrontive words of the Apostle John about what your love actually looks like when it takes on flesh and blood. Thank you for the gift of Jesus so we can see it in action. We thank you for Christ, for forgiveness, for new life, and we acknowledge that Jesus is our source of life and our purpose and everything else, Lord God. In the strong name of this Jesus, everybody said, amen, amen. Will you stand to your feet as our prayer partners come forward now? If there is anything that we can pray for you about right here in person, we can, we, we can stand with you. We can join our faith with yours and agree with you. Come forward. Don't, don't leave without getting uh, these wonderful folks to pray with you. Um, and if, like I said, if you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time today, this would be a great time to do it. What better time to start the, the best part of your life you'll ever experience than right now today. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. May he lift his countenance and may his grace and peace be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.